Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My guest today is Trisha Minkler. She has served in law enforcement in Washington State for eight years. Prior to that, she was a prosecutor at the county level with King County and then Mason County Prosecutor's Offices, and then an assistant city attorney for the city of Auburn. Trisha's primary reason for joining me today is that she has a very important story she wants to share about wellness, survival, and recovery. Trisha's path has not been easy. She's developed PTSD over the course of her career. Trauma on the job has led her to seek help after struggling with alcohol and attempting suicide. For reasons we will discuss, she has lost her job in law enforcement. We conducted this interview just a few weeks before she received official word from her department. But she is here with a message of hope and encouragement for anyone who is struggling. She wants everyone to know that her recovery is a journey that has been worth it. And she's embarking on a new career, which we will also talk about. Well, let me just say, Trisha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me and thank you for wanting to share your story. I know it's not easy, but I know that it's important to you. And I think there are other people out there who will want to hear what you have to say. Let's start here. Tell me why you wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to help people. As generic as that is, I mean, my story's not the typical law enforcement officer story. I have been involved in in law enforcement in some way or shape or form since undergraduate school, um, where I worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I went to law school, even though ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop. Um, so I went to law school. I thought, hey, I could do the FBI thing or the prosecutor thing. I like it. I like, you know, serving the public and serving our society and, and then upholding the law. And then so I became a prosecutor and I loved, I liked my job. It's a great job. Um, but I, there was this part of me that always wanted to be a cop, that always wanted to be there talking to the people, investigating and listening and, and just trying to help others. And so I had two friends die. Um, my best friend growing up was killed by a drunk driver or drug driver um, in Auburn, the very city I worked in. I was in the courtroom one day and I saw that. And then um, my best friend in law school, her uh, husband was killed. He was an off-duty firefighter and he was killed in Missouri by a, by a police officer, justified killing. And I thought life short. Uh, if I want to do this, you know, I need to do this now and I want to make a difference. So I went for it. I loved it. I loved being a cop. I loved being able to talk to people and make cases or help people or just be an ear, you know. How was the um, off-duty firefighter shooting justified? What had he done, he or she? Uh, he was drunk. He got in a fight with a cab driver. And the cop chased him. And then the drunk guy got um, into a fight with the cop and mounted the cop and started to uh, bash the cop's head in. So the cop had to kill. Jeez. Well, I would assume that being a prosecutor brought a level of awareness and understanding of what you needed to do as an officer to build a case is, or to ask que what questions to ask. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I came in with a good background in, in law and, and in interviewing people and talking to people, which I think helped real good confidence in my ability to understand what was needed in a case. And then also understand why prosecutors decline cases, even though 
as a law enforcement officer, we might get frustrated. I can respect, or I should say, I used to respect more their their decisions. What's an example of why a case wouldn't get prosecuted? Uh, the victim. If the victim doesn't want the case to go forward and it's not, it's one of those you balance the interest of justice in society versus the victim. Do you want to re-victimize this person? So it depends on what the crimes are and you weigh that. And sometimes you go without the victim and you, you know, are without the victim's cooperation and, and you get an angry victim. Um, but the societal interests in that danger to the public outweigh the victim. And then there's also, there's only, if there's 500 cops in one county and there's 30 prosecutors, there's five courtrooms. I mean, you yeah. can only do what you can only do. Yeah. Well, and now we're not prosecuting any crimes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we still are, though. There's still, you know, I still have some friends that they, they're out there doing the good fight. It's just a lot of crimes that people don't consider heinous aren't being prosecuted. And you talked to what, what the one thing you said to me was that the little kid in me always wanted to be a cop, mm -hmm. which I thought was so sweet. <laughs> yeah, my uh, I found. Uh, when I, my kindergarten thing, it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a police officer. Aww. Do you know why? I just, I think it's the the duty, the duty to serve the public. Right. When you first started, was it what you thought it would be? Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and how? I mean, it was fun. It was exciting. It was hard. Is I didn't, I mean, there's a lot you have to go through in every minute of every day that you're processing, right? Even if I'm talking to you and we're having a casual conversation, I still have to be aware of everything that's going around me, my radio, and the you're my threat. You're a th threat, right? I don't know if you're if I'm going to say something that's going to upset you and you're going to attack me. So you have to always be on. It's it's the hardest thing I've ever done by far. So I will just say, you know, when I have photographed officers or I've been doing ride-alongs or interviewing them on the job, I'm. I'm photographing them and they're looking at me, but then their eyes are going <laughs> everywhere around me. You know, as you say, they're just constantly on, you know, head on a swivel. Yeah. You're always scanning. Yeah. Did you find the job changed you? Yeah. A hundred percent. And can you elaborate? I mean, I hate people. The job prevented you from seeing the good in society and you, and you lose sight of that. Yeah, you recognize good. And I volunteered coach basketball as a, as a way to kind of remember the good um, the whole time I was working. But you just become jaded. It's pretty funny. One of my friends said to me the other day, uh, he was my old patrol partner, and I'm best friends with him and his wife now, and I watch their kids. I eat dinner with them twice a week. And he go before I got help, he didn't want to be around me because I was so negative and dark and I had no light in my eyes and I was just horrible to be around. And now he watched, he watches me interact with his kids who are, you know, three and one and a half and I'm playing with them and I'm fun to be around. And it's like the old me, the me before he knew me as a prosecutor. It was like, Oh, there you are. You know, you do exist. I mean, I think that's a good example because there's someone that knew me. In fact, all my friends that know that knew me before and in college, said I had changed. They couldn't explain it. They just saw it. 
And then now they've seen me now and they said, you know, I'm back to myself. I did want to say, too, when you mentioned your friend who said he didn't want to be around you because you weren't you anymore. Did he try to help you? No. Do you know why? Don't I don't think they know how. Mm. I think other officers are afraid to talk about this. I think other officers are are afraid because, again, you don't want to offend anyone. But at the same time, I do think we as a, officers need to step up and help each other out. That's why, you know, another reason I'm doing this is I, I want people, I, people need to not be afraid to talk about this. You know, mm-hmm. mental health is an issue. Officers get tired. We're exposed to things that no human should have to see on a daily basis. And then we go home. It's one of those things that you have to sometimes wonder, and I don't let myself go down this path too far, but you know, had I gotten help earlier, would I be in the spot I am? Now I don't regret the spot I'm in. I'm happy to be where I'm at, but I know other officers that didn't get help and then get terminated and then have no resources. So had they gotten help before, would they have ever lost their jobs? You know, you see it. You see when officers are spiraling and just no one says anything. And it's pretty crazy to think that law, law enforcement really doesn't talk about suicide. And if an officer does end up killing themselves, it's not considered a line of duty death. And um, I think it, personally, I think it should be. I do too. I did an episode with a, one of the co-founders of Blue Help, which is now called First Help, that they do suicide awareness prevention and, you know, I learned in the process of researching that, that you can, if an officer commits suicide, his or her benefits are cut off that day. If you have a family, their benefits are cut off. You don't get the line of duty death. You don't get the memorial. You don't, you're not on the officer down memorial page. None of it. It's like you don't exist. Right. We're just going to swipe that under the rug. Right. Yes. I think there's a lot of effort to change that think some departments are doing things differently, but yeah. Yeah. And I think bigger departments have more funds. Yeah. It's the smaller departments that don't. Right. So you loved it. And then at what point did you not love it? I love the job. The job hated me. In what way? That's how I look at it. The job, the job killed me. I didn't hate the job. I love, if I could be a cop tomorrow, I'd be a cop tomorrow. You know, hindsight's, 2020, looking back, I probably started having PTSD symptoms five years ago, even sooner, but you just don't really know. I finally started seeking out help two years ago. You know, you're not sleeping, nightmares. I drank a lot to just not feel. You're just kind of, you're just kind of like a a shell of a person, but I mean, I could go do the job. No problem. How did, is it the... The calls that you go to, the things that you had to see, like domestic violence, child abuse. Yeah, I've seen it all. Uh, people dying in your hands, bleeding out, taking kids from good homes because there's a court order that says they have to go with their loser parent. And you have to follow that court order, even though they were in safe and you can't do anything about it. And I don't have children. And because I don't, everyone gave me the kid calls. Oh, jeez. On patrol. So I, it's like you can handle it. You don't have kids. But that was not true. Yeah. And I'm a woman. So if the mom's crying, if the kids are crying, 
it's here. You deal with it. Hmm. You can handle it. So how was it that you ended up not being able to get treatment and are now in the position of losing your job? I got treatment by myself. I, I went on my own. My city didn't even know. And I told them once I was down there and filed my worker's comp claim because I initially didn't want to file my claim. I knew once I filed my claim, then the city would be aware. So it took several months for people to convince me to file. About a year, about a year and a half. <laughs> and when I was in treatment, I filed the claim and then I told my city. And because of that, they requested a fit for duty, even though I had an LNI claim pending but L and I didn't approve my claim for seven months. So I was in this limbo of seven months of I'm stuck doing whatever the city orders me. Had L and I approved my claim in time, the city could have never ordered a fit for duty. And I would have never been found unfit because L and I waited seven and a half months to approve my claim. It, it jeopardized my employment. And then I was deemed unfit. So then I came back from treatment in this seventh month period and the city put me on administrative leave and ordered me to do a fit for duty. So if I didn't do the fit for duty, I'd get fired. So I had to do the fit for duty because I needed health care. Uh, and I was waiting for workers comp. So I uh, had no choice. And I did the fit for duty and I didn't lie. Two things that I'm not familiar with, L&I and fit for duty. I, I mean, I can interpret fit for duty, but mm-hmm. how, what is L&I? I, I Googled it and it's kind yeah. of like workers comp. Yeah, it's it's our it's Washington State's workers comp. It's labor and industries. Washington State's legislature approved a law that says if you've been a cop or a firefighter or first responder for ten years, you automatic there's an automatic presumption of PTSD. But if you don't reach this arbitrary ten year marker, there's not a presumption. Well, I have eight years in in law enforcement, so they didn't initially approve me, even though I provided, I think. 500 pages of medical records. And um, I had four different doctors in the treatment facility, I'll say. That's LNI approved. All the doctors were LNI approved. I made sure everyone is LNI approved. I called and called and fought and fought them for seven months, seven and a half months. And fit for duty, is that a test or is that an interview? It's a series of psychological tests and then an interview. And what I found was interesting is that my fit for duty was done by Zoom. I mean, this is my career. So why do you think this is happening and how many people does this happen to? You know, I don't, I think one, it's happening because I think L and I was afraid to approve my claim because I have less than 10 years on and they don't want to open the floodgates to officers because it's going to be a significant expense because it's not like I broke my hand, which I've had surgery on my hand because of work and I get healed. This could take a couple of years and incur significant expense. So, I, I mean, it comes to money. And then people just kind of fade out. They just disappear. Meaning? They just, at work, right, you're there one day and you're gone and no one talks about why. There's rumors. I mean, there's rumors in my department that I'm addicted to pain pills and all this stuff. And that's not true. And there's no one that can help you? No. I mean, I'm, I think I'm doing it. I have really good providers that I've found on my own that are law enforcement and first responder culturally competent. There's so few of them. 
I know you said you want to help people. So what does that look like? How do you want to help? I just want to talk about it because I don't think it's not talked about. You know, it's not talked about that you can watch someone bleed out and then an hour and a half later, you're at a domestic with a weapon. Then you're at a kid call. Then you're dealing with a parent-kid issue that's not even criminal and they want you to fix it. And then when you don't, you're called names. And I just, law enforcement's kind of different than any other entity because fire, you generally work 24 on and you have 24 off. And the studies show that you're able to come down off of your shift and kind of recover and sleep and, and have a natural t- cycle. Whereas in law enforcement, you never get that cycle. You're always at a heightened state. You're always, you never get a recover. You never get an opportunity to recover. And our shifts don't allow for it. People are afraid of change. People don't, oh, I like my four days off. So I'm going to work 13 hours in a row, 14 hours in a row, five days in a row. It's not really worth it. Departments and, and people need to look at different ways to schedule and shifts to allow several days off. But then again, we don't have staffing. Yeah. You know, Kent's on 12s. Auburn's going to 12s. I mean, all that these agencies are... That means 12... 12 hour shifts. And instead of eight? 10. And in those cities, I mean, those cities are slammed. I was just talking about this yesterday, the impact of everything from the riots in 2020 and the negative narrative on law enforcement and then this exodus of officers and the impact that has on those left working. Yeah. And you don't think I didn't feel bad disappearing from work and not being there for my team that I can't be there and help out. And I don't think that's something that goes away. I think I can reconcile with it, but I still feel bad. You said the cumulative stress of, it wasn't, so it wasn't necessarily, uh, so for some officers, it is getting in a shooting, being shot at, or having to shoot someone, or there is just the call that breaks them. So for you, was it a specific calls or the accumulation? Um, It was the accumulation but there are in that accumulation several what you call critical incidents. So, I mean, I've been in everything from tortured children, just the most heinous things you can imagine that people do to kids. And then beyond that to watching a guy bleed out in front of me um, to having my finger on the trigger and the trigger slack pulled all the way out, almost all the way out. And an officer stepping in front of my gun because he didn't know, where he was at, and I almost shot him, to, you know, getting in a fight surrounded by 20 people by myself, and someone uh, took my finger and pulled it back, and I grabbed it quickly, put it back in place, and, you know, got out until I had more officers, and people are screaming that there's guys with guns. My patrol car's been rammed. How did you get into a situation where you were the only officer with 20 people around you? I, I was first on scene mm. to a a tone out call. And I didn't realize when I pulled up, it was a weird situation. And you didn't, it's one of those that you don't have a lot of information. And you have a guy running around an apartment complex with a gun, screaming and threatening people turned out to be a party gone wrong. But you kind of got to start looking for him. Wow. And so those people at the party were the people who surrounded you? 
Mm-hmm. And were they threatening you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, during the riots, I saw officers who were who got trapped alone with civilians who were threatening them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, I can't compare it to the riots. I didn't have to work in Seattle and I'm, I'm lucky for that. I don't know what those officers went through. Well, we talked in the pre-interview about getting to the point where suicide felt like the answer for you. Yeah. Do you want to tell me about that? I was on patrol shift. It was in, and it was night shift. I went to the female's locker room and I pulled out my gun and put it up to my head and I got toned out and my finger was on the trigger and I was ready to go and I didn't care. And I got toned out to another call. So I posted my gun and went to work and worked the rest of my shift and then um, I didn't tell anyone for several, for a week or so, because I didn't want to get committed, right? You got to play that fine line, but I knew I needed help. So I might reach out to my psychologist who then helped me. So you're, you, you're in this mindset and you go back out on the street and what's going through your head at that point. It's like, how did you even go? You got to work. Yeah. You get Someone needs help. You got to help them. The root of, I think, a lot of problems and is we. I have a duty to help others before I help myself, and that's kind of ingrained in us. At least it was ingrained in me. But you know, the when you start working on yourself and you you think about it, right? When you're on a plane, the flight attendant says, "Put the oxygen oxygen mask on yourself before you can help someone else." So I'm mm-hmm. hoping by doing this that I can help someone else. If I can help one person by having this conversation, then it's worth it. And what would you tell someone else in your in a similar situation? You're not alone. You are not alone. There are several officers and members, first responders that have been in the same spot as you. And you can get help and you can get back out on the street and you can work again if that's what you want. But... You're not alone. You did a lot on your own. You called your psychologist. You got yourself into treatment that you found. Were you aware of organizations that can do this for you, or were you not aware? I I knew of Code 4 Northwest, but I didn't trust anyone. So I didn't reach out because I had a fear. If I, if I told someone, then my work might know, and I didn't. I didn't want to jeopardize my employment. I do know about Code 4 as well, and I do know that everything is confidential. Yeah. Um, So for anybody who is in Washington State and does need help, we can recommend Code 4. Yeah. And and now I know of other organizations. You know, there's the First Responder Support Network. It's national. And then you have West Coast Trauma Retreat out of California. And then you have Warrior Path, which is out of Washington. They all started mostly as military, but they've realized that first responders have the same thing. So now they've branched out and it's all our great organizations. If you're someone on the job, what are the signs that maybe I think you said you probably had PTSD earlier than you realized? I I guess the signs you, you mentioned were not being able to sleep, nightmares. What would you tell someone to be looking out for? Nightmares. Um, irritability, unprovoked irritability, or just your short fuse. Hypervigilance uh, is a big one. It's part of who we are, but it's also, it can overtake you. Drinking or using other things to cope. 
taking ex, um, unneeded and extra risk, risk-taking behavior, kind of isolating, removing yourself from people you know and trust or your group, excess sleeping sometimes, you know, the opposite end is depression. And then suicidal ideation or intrusive thoughts of some nature. Well, my heart goes out to you and others who may be listening who got to the point where wanting to end it all feels like the solution. I didn't care to live anymore. I understood that others may suffer because of my actions, but I thought it was the best thing to do. And I'm so glad to this day that I did it. That's an important message. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I never thought I would say that. I, I thought even months into treatment, I thought that was, I would never believe that I would be happy that I'd be alive. And I'm glad I proved myself wrong. And trust me, I fought that hard tooth and nail. I was a stubborn son of a gun. <laughs> How did they finally get through to you? Patience, acceptance, accepting me before I could accept myself. So, you know, some people do the job. It seems like almost everyone comes away with some hurt, something. You know, I, again, each person is different. I just think, like in treatment, we're taught everyone has a backpack and some rocks in that backpack get way down more than others. And some people's backpack gets full and some people's don't, you know, and they might have different ways to cope different family, different beliefs, different structures, or, you know, everyone's wired a different way, right? And that's what's cool about police work is that you have so many people with different backgrounds and experiences and personalities and that come together to do one common good. And so I just think you have so many different types of people with so many different experiences that you can't really predict how each person's going to respond to what they see. And then also, you know, some officers are just ship magnets. <laughs> I've heard that a few times. I was a ship magnet. <laughs> yeah, you know. And I liked it. I liked getting into it. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed working hard. I, I worked for the people. I figured I needed to work all my whole shift. And, and that's was my mentality. One of the things you had said when we did the pre-interview was that as a prosecutor, you also had trauma. Mm-hmm. What, tell me about that. It's kind of going back to the victims and like as a prosecutor, you have to be the expert on your case, right? You have to know every fact and every detail of your case. So every fact and every grain on, and every pixel of that picture, those audio recordings, the screamings, the victim interviews, telling a victim that I'm sorry, I know you were raped, but I can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So I'm not going to prosecute or telling a victim, I know you're afraid of your husband and you think he's going to kill you, but he's getting released from jail tomorrow. Here's a piece of paper. Good luck. You know, seeing photographs and inundating yourself with these these stories and, and you become connected to your cases. They, they are, you know, you win, you lose. No, no one else but you. And uh I, I don't think people realize what prosecutors go through. And I know they're getting a bad rap right now, but I do know several amazing prosecutors that love law enforcement and work their butt off just like we do and don't sleep. And 
I, I do feel for the ones out there fighting the good fight. I, I really do. They're, they are great and an amazing people who just want to serve the public and make sure that justice is done, whether, you know, trying a case or not trying a case. Huh. I never would know. You know, and what you're talking about does sound a little bit like law enforcement, too. I would assume, I, I imagine interviewing victims as a police officer, it's a similar difficult experience. Yeah. I always was tried to be upfront and honest, as honest as I could be about what could potentially happen with cases to, to people. You know, I, I can guarantee you that I'm going to write a report and I'm going to include everything that you did in the statement and I will do my best to continue to investigate this, but I can't guarantee anything. And so that similar feeling, I mean, you're helping, right? But then you feel helpless. Yep. Yeah. And you got to remember a lot of the times the prosecutor will make a recommendation or try a case and it's, it's really the judge is just final determination. You know, does this person get released from jail? Does this person go to prison? You know, the prosecutor can't control what a judge does. Interesting. Cause we do find ourselves in this place where a lot of crimes, I know you said they're doing a good job, but a lot of crimes are not getting prosecuted. And I'm not clear on what the goal is. You got me on that one, too. <laughs> I know the prosecutor's offices are short-staffed, just like police officers. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. We talked about wanting to be a cop. We talked about loving it, but also how it didn't love you. Were there rewards? Yeah. Hundred percent. I have some great memories of cases and people I've met that I know I changed their life and they changed mine for the good. There's this one lady that came in and she just wanted to get information on how to get a protection order. And I took the time to sit with her and ended up talking to her for two and a half hours. And I found that her boyfriend stalked her, threatened her with guns numerous times, kidnapped her, beat her. And I got her to give me a statement and we went and re- set up on him and arrested him that night, you know, wow. and the look in her, she goes, no one's ever listened to me before. She goes, I had no idea. And I just talked to her. Wow. I mean, that's. And that case was prosecuted. No gun was ever found, but the case was prosecuted and the guy went to prison. And all that was circumstantial evidence based on her statements. Wow. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, I know I've heard of other stories. I've heard of talked to survivors of domestic violence. I had interviewed one who said something similar, that it was the officer. who She didn't think she was abused. She didn't understand or didn't want to believe that, you know, and he did similar to you. He got her to follow the steps you went through with this woman. So, well, and I know that you... Um, anyone listening is understanding if you're not going to be able to go back to law enforcement, what will you choose to do? I've uh, been accepted into a master's program for counseling and psychology at Northwest University in Kirkland. Okay. And I'm going, I'm going back to get my master's and I want to work with first responders and their family members. How does that feels like a good. It's a way I get to keep serving. I get to keep helping, and that's kind of all I've ever wanted to do is serve and help people, and I figure I can still be involved in law enforcement indirectly. You know, taking your personal experience and helping, I mean, if you had had that helping hand, mm-hmm. 
I know we touched on this earlier, but I think it's important to reinforce if there is somebody out there who's listening, who is feeling anywhere near the way you felt, what would you tell them right now? Uh, that you're not alone. To give yourself a, a minute, take a breath, and and pick up that phone. It's heavy, um, but you're not alone. There's other officers out there that have been in the same situation as you, thought the same things as you, and it doesn't end their career. It doesn't make their life worse. It will make your life better and that there is help, that you will be able to smile again. That's kind of what I think. Well, you know, I can see you. You're, my audience can't see you. And when you smile, your whole face lights up. So it's nice to see you smile. Thanks. <laughs> you know, and one thing I remembered you said at the top was that you hate people. <laughs> so, but you want to help people. So how does that, that doesn't wash. <laughs> I like my people. Um, no, I, 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 I'm learning to like more and more and more and more people. It's exposure therapy, right? You gotta, you gotta get out there and, and do things sometimes that you don't want to do, which is what I did. But when you say that it's from what you saw on the streets. Yeah. How people treat each other. Yeah. And, uh, and then how society treated us. Before George Floyd, things were bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, think cops were not, so that had an impact on you too, the, the negative narrative on law enforcement? Yeah, I don't think you could say that it, it didn't. I, I think that you'd be unhuman yeah. to say that the negativity didn't affect you. Yeah. I lost several friends because of my career. Meaning, oh, because you were... Just they, because I chose to be a police officer. I have heard that more times than I can tell you, which is shocking to me. Friends and family. Yeah. But I'll stand there and protect your rights any day. You have absolutely 100% of right to protest peacefully, and I will make sure that you can do that. I mean, it's horrible. You guys are out there risking your lives, and people are attacking you verbally, physically. Yeah. And what I, I think people don't realize, and I say, well, the public is... In general, not everyone. No good cop wants bad cops, right? No good cops like, yay, there's a bad cop. Let's keep him around. And what he did is awesome. In every profession, there's people that don't uphold and do the profession in the right light or do things wrong. There's more, a lot more good cops than there are bad cops in the world. And sometimes that's not even a bad cop. It's someone who's in a bad situation. You know, I mean... Mm -hmm. I, yes, there are bad cops, or said another way, there are bad people who are cops. Yes. Yeah. You make that split-second decision based off of the information you have, and then you get quarterback, Monday night quarterback off of that from someone safe in their office. Right. Well, and who's never done the job and has no yeah. idea. I went to a doctor once, and they they were, they were talking about how civilian oversight is such a great thing for officers. And I asked the doctor, I said, well, who's your oversight committee? She said, other doctors. I said, so you would want a civilian to tell you how to, that you operated incorrectly or correctly or made the medical decision. He goes, I never thought about that. I never went back to that doctor again. But I'm a lawyer. Who's my, on my review board? Other lawyers. So it I just, you know, who's part, who runs the bar? Lawyers. So. I do think it's interesting. Do you think some of these things happened for a reason? 
yeah, I think things happen for a reason that are beyond my control. And you just got to go with it sometimes, you know. When a door closes, it opens again. You know, it doesn't stay closed. I have new opportunities that I never thought I would go down. I look forward to it, you know. I think it's important to discuss uh, the recovery is a journey and it takes time, but it's worth it. I do not regret my recovery at all. Some things haven't gone as I would like, but I do not regret the decision to ever get help. I just want people to know that it's worth it. That is an incredibly important message. Thank you for being here today to share your experience and insight. I'm sure that you will be helping someone else. Yeah. Trisha wanted me to mention she is working on creating an in-person support group for first responders in the Pacific Northwest. If you're interested, you can connect with her through LinkedIn. During our conversation, she mentioned a number of organizations supporting first responders. I will include the links to those organizations in the episode notes. In my next episode, I will be talking with the executive director of Code 4 Northwest, Sergeant Nick Bauer, who recently retired from the Seattle Police Department after 30 years. We will talk about how you can get help confidentially through Code 4 Northwest if you're in Washington State, whether it's a phone call, counseling, or treatment. Most of you in the area know of their good work, but I feel it's important to follow up this episode with actions you can take to protect your mental and emotional well-being. I want to thank Trisha again for sharing her story.